Carter here. If you enjoy the profiles featured in Historical Figures, you'll absolutely love what we have in store for you in Season 2 of the critically acclaimed series Famous Fates, titled Falls from Grace. We're back with brand new episodes you can only hear on Spotify. Every Wednesday, Vanessa and I take on the tales of two of history's most scandalous characters, examining the factors, both personal and circumstantial, that turned epic tales of fame into tragic ends of shame. You can find these two Falls from Grace episodes each week, free and only on Spotify. But right now, I am thrilled to share one of our new episodes on the Scheme King himself, Charles Ponzi. If you'd like to hear today's other episode on modern-day fraudster Bernie Madoff, head over to the Famous Fates feed and subscribe for free today. But remember, these episodes are only available on Spotify. It's June of 1926 in Jacksonville, Florida. The day is sweltering with humidity. The waves wash gently on the sand. Then... In the distance, something peculiar. From afar, it looks like a dark clump of seaweed, but drawing closer, it's a pile of sopping wet clothes. No, a suit. Though it's been drenched by the tide, it's a beautiful one. Three-piece, perhaps hand-tailored, with gleaming double-breasted buttons. A piece of paper, folded and damp, falls from the pocket. Only some words are legible in the saltwater-smeared ink. I'm sorry. Couldn't go on. Please forgive me. It's a suicide note. At the end of the letter, a signature is scrawled in flamboyant cursive. It reads, Charles Ponzi. Ponzi, the Italian financial wizard with a Midas touch, who turned working-class Americans wealthy overnight and the same man who was exposed as nothing but a two-bit con artist who'd swindled his investors out of millions. It seems like a fitting, if dramatic, end for a scammer who ruined the lives of thousands. But in reality, the disgraced Ponzi was not at sea, bobbing lifeless in the current, but hundreds of miles away with a new name, a new story, and a new mustache, en route for a new life. But he wouldn't get far. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. And this is Season 2 of Famous Fates Falls from Grace. This season, we're examining once-revered historical figures whose stories ended in less-than-savory ways. Every week, we're bringing you two episodes examining the lives of two fascinating people in the same industry. They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This week, we're chronicling the great decline of the founding father of fraud, Charles Ponzi. Nearly a century before Bernie Madoff stole billions, Charles Ponzi was the dapper Italian con artist who laid the foundations for his scam. 
the Ponzi scheme. July 26, 1920 was a Monday. That morning, 38-year-old Charles Ponzi was being chauffeured from his sprawling mansion in the Boston suburbs to his downtown offices. But when his driver turned the corner, Ponzi looked out his backseat window to find a scene that he later wrote, no man could forget. A sea of people, young, old, immigrant, American, rich and poor, had stretched from his office on School Street all the way down the road and around the corner. The mob was so thick, they'd traffic. But when they saw Ponzi's gleaming blue limousine, they parted to let it pass. And as his chauffeur opened the door, they cheered. Ponzi stepped out onto the car's running board and beamed. Like a maestro conducting an orchestra, he waved his gold-handled cane at the crowd to a crescendo of whistles and applause. At just five foot two, he was hardly the portrait of a hero, but that's the sort of welcome he received. To his admirers, he was the Merlin of money, a financial wizard who could turn them from paupers into kings overnight. All they had to do was hand him everything they had, their paychecks, their retirement funds, their life savings. And they did. Ponzi raked in hundreds of thousands of dollars within the span of a single day. The mobs of investors overwhelmed his clerks to the point where they were stuffing cash in wastebaskets. Sadly, it might as well have stayed there. In less than one month, Ponzi would lose it all. Their money, his money, his mansion, his reputation, and his freedom. Ponzi's fall would be long and painful as he grasped futilely at the shreds of his former glory. But it was a fitting end for a man who scratched and crawled his way to the top. An Italian native, Charles Ponzi began life as Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guillermo Tebaldo Ponzi, the precious only child of a postman and his wife. When he was young, his mother, Amelda, spun him stories of a successful future that Ponzi called Castles in the Air. Years later, he boarded an ocean liner bound for America in the hopes he'd return a wealthy man beyond her wildest dreams. Ponzi landed in Boston in 1903 with nothing but $2.50 in his pocket and spent the next 16 years pulling himself up by his bootstraps and realizing his American dream. On the way, he met the love of his life, Rose, the daughter of Italian immigrants, who at just 4 foot 11 was the perfect match to his 5 foot 2. They married within a year of meeting, and though Rose was perfectly happy with their humble life, Ponzi couldn't shake the desire for more. What he wouldn't give to trade in their tiny apartment for a mansion and to see his new bride dripping in diamonds. But he couldn't foot the bill. Until August of 1919, when 37-year-old Charles Ponzi picked up an insignificant piece of paper that would change the course of his entire life, an international reply coupon. 
International reply coupons were prepaid postage that could be used anywhere throughout the world. And in the early 20th century, they were especially popular with young immigrants corresponding with family in the old country. The coupon itself was only worth one cent. Ponzi, however, saw millions. His idea was classic arbitrage. Because the U.S. dollar was strong at the time, he'd buy the stamps in bulk overseas for a cheaper price, return to America, and redeem them at higher values. Then he'd make a profit off the difference. And the gains would be enormous. When he crunched the numbers, he calculated a 230% profit. He was going to be rich. Ponzi immediately began chatting up everyone he knew in Boston about his new venture. He called it the Securities Exchange Company, or SEC, a name ironically similar to the Securities Exchange Commission, which would be founded by President Franklin D. Roosevelt over a decade later. But unlike Roosevelt's SEC, Ponzi's did little to protect investors. In fact, he exploited them. This was because there was no actual business. Ponzi hadn't actually bought a single reply coupon. And even if he did, he didn't know how to redeem them for money. He was selling everyone an idea, not a practical plan. This wasn't deception per se on Ponzi's part. It was pure, audacious optimism. He believed his plan would work with every fiber of his being. He'd figure out the details later. He always did. But first, he needed to secure as many investors as he could. Once Ponzi received the funds from his very first backers, he didn't use them to buy international reply coupons. Instead, he simply charmed another set of investors and used their money to pay the first set of investors. Ponzi's once dubious venture was now full-blown financial fraud. He'd taken the first step in his eponymous scheme. The Ponzi scheme could be likened to an ever-ravenous beast. Bring it to life and you become responsible for feeding and growing it so it doesn't die. If you stop, though, more often than not, it feeds on you. But Ponzi was a diligent caretaker of his own beast. In order to pay off the previous wave of backers, he promised new investors 50% interest to be paid out within 45 days. Such a fast, high-yielding turnaround was practically unheard of. But some took the gamble, and it paid in spades. Not only did Ponzi keep his promise, he paid them back early. And soon, word of his financial wizardry spread like wildfire. Soon, everyone in Boston wanted to invest with Ponzi. Priests and policemen, immigrants and middle-class folks, no one could say no to getting rich quick. It was the eve of the Roaring Twenties, after all. The economy was booming, and for perhaps the first time, wealth seemed accessible even to the working class. Everyone wanted their piece of the American dream, and Ponzi took full advantage of their optimism. 
The money began pouring in. By the spring of 1920, each week the SEC was making the equivalent of $400,000 in today's money. And once he got a taste of wealth, Ponzi couldn't get enough. In May of 1920, he decided their modest apartment was no place for a business tycoon and his wife. So they moved to the moneyed suburb of Lexington. Their palace was fit with luxuries unheard of in 1920, including central air conditioning and a heated swimming pool. But of course, no mansion was complete without staff. And by that time, Ponzi found he quite liked tossing around orders. So he hired a gardener, a chef, and a butler, as well as a chauffeur to drive his brand new cars, a cream-colored coupe and a customized blue limousine. But more importantly, after almost 20 years, Ponzi could send real money back to his beloved mother in Italy. And that summer, he sent for her. After 17 long years apart, his elderly mother was on her way to Boston to see everything he'd built for himself. In less than a year, Charles Ponzi had become one of Boston's most wealthy businessmen, a multimillionaire with his faithful wife and beloved mother by his side. His wildest dreams had come true. It would have been the perfect time to take the money and run, but Ponzi had finally gotten everything he wanted, and he would stick around to enjoy it. Like all pyramid schemes, though, as it grew, it teetered with the added height. And looking down from the top, Ponzi's potential fall only got more treacherous. Coming up, Charles Ponzi goes to war with the press. Now, back to the story. At 37 years old, Charles Ponzi was living paycheck to paycheck. By age 38, in the summer of 1920, he had become one of Boston's most wealthy businessmen, a self-made multi-millionaire with a beautiful wife, a mansion in the suburbs, and a glowing reputation. He'd finally built himself a castle in the sky, like his mother had always dreamed about. But that was exactly the problem. His empire had no foundation. It may as well have been resting on clouds. On paper, Ponzi's business concept was buying international postage at a low price in Europe and selling high in the U.S. In practice, however, he'd yet to purchase a single stamp. Instead, he'd been paying his previous investors with his new investors' cash, which, of course, required a constant influx of money. And Ponzi had no trouble securing it. Thousands of dollars poured into a security exchange company each day. But this was only supposed to be a temporary solution, just until he could figure out the logistics of his real business. But days turned into months, and Ponzi was still too busy paying out his infinite chain of investors to even try implementing his original plan. When he actually got around to inquiring with the U.S. Postal Service, he found out that his international postage scheme was nearly impossible. By then, it was too late. The scheme had grown too quickly. Hundreds of people believed they were investing in reply coupons, If he changed his tune now, the whole thing would surely collapse. 
So as waves of money rolled in, Ponzi kept up the appearance of a legitimate venture and took as much as his community was willing to hand him. That summer, Ponzi expanded his offices, moving into a luxurious spot on School Street downtown. He hired more tellers and sales agents, and soon they spilled out of Boston and set up offices in other parts of New England. But Ponzi wasn't satisfied with just one business. Within months, he set about diversifying his ventures, purchasing a macaroni company, a meatpacking plant, and a sardine factory. With multiple businesses now under his control, Ponzi was finding out exactly what kind of power his money could buy. And soon, his investments got personal, or rather, petty. Ponzi began indulging in what's best described as revenge buyouts. In 1920, he set his sights on two companies in particular, J.R. Poole, a former employer that had underpaid him for years, and the Hanover Trust, a bank whose president had rudely rejected his business loan applications the year before. Ponzi walked into John Poole's office unannounced, wrote a check for a controlling stake in the company, and promptly fired his former boss. Ponzi's plan for the Hanover Trust Bank was far more insidious. As Ponzi's wealth grew, he deposited vast sums of money into his account over months until he became by far the bank's largest depositor. Suddenly, the same bank president who denied him a small business loan was at Ponzi's beck and call. By that summer, Ponzi gained controlling interest and became the director. He now owned his own bank. His dealings at J.R. Poole and Hanover Trust showed a new side of Charles Ponzi. Gone was the genial, pint-sized Italian. This Ponzi was not only shrewd, but manipulative, bitter, and vindictive. And it was clear he held on to a grudge. But in his eyes, he was still very much the hero of his own story. In his autobiography, he likened himself to a modern-day Count of Monte Cristo. But while Ponzi enjoyed the fruits of his fraud, his wife, Rose, wasn't nearly as thrilled. Ponzi showered her with furs, glittering jewelry, and silks. But Rose was far thriftier than her extravagant husband and would often sneak trips to return his gifts. She missed her small apartment with its simplicity and privacy away from the prying eyes of staff. The one gift she accepted with open arms, though, was a puppy, a Boston Terrier she named Beauty to keep her company during her husband's long hours at the office. Ponzi's days were filled with meetings and luncheons. He even hosted talks at the local Kiwanis Club. To the people of Boston, he was nothing short of a hero, the spitting image of the American dream. But for all his popularity, Ponzi was almost never in the newspapers. He kept a high-low profile. Everybody knew him, yet the press didn't touch him. This doesn't mean Ponzi was impervious to criticism. He just wasn't news. Until he did something scandalous, reporting on a seemingly successful businessman simply wasn't worth the ink. But in the sweltering summer of 1920, Charles Ponzi would become a regular fixture in the Boston papers. 
It began in July, when one of Ponzi's first investors sued him, claiming they were entitled to a percentage of his business. The Boston Post printed a story about the drama, but instead of seeing a drop in his investments, Ponzi saw them increase. He'd stumbled on a classic principle of publicity. All press is good press. And soon he decided to harness its power to make even more money. Ponzi hired publicist William McMasters, a former Boston Post reporter. On July 24th, McMasters landed Ponzi a glowing front-page profile. The article swept through Boston, and when the security exchange company opened Monday morning, there was a crowd outside so large it wrapped around the corner. By the time they closed their doors, the SEC had raked in hundreds of thousands of dollars. But just two days after printing Ponzi's glowing profile, the Boston Post published a new piece that would threaten everything. Once again, Ponzi had made the front page, but this time the article was a scathing critique of the SEC's model. It pointed out that there were not enough international reply coupons in the entire world to make the business work. Ponzi's plan required millions of coupons in circulation. The Postal Service had less than 50,000. The jig was up. That week, a mob gathered outside of his office again, but this time they weren't giving him their money. They were intent on taking it back. Other investors, however, chose to ignore the noise. They stayed at home and kept their money with the SEC, sure that Ponzi would keep his promise. The people of Boston didn't know whether Charles Ponzi was a crook or a hero, but the Boston Post knew a rat when they smelled one. Or the rest of the summer, Ponzi's name was in headlines nearly every day in a string of scathing exposés. But as the press stepped up their attacks, Ponzi played aggressive defense. With help from William McMasters, Ponzi focused on healing his public image. He donated $100,000 to a local orphanage at an elaborate ceremony, complete with carnival games and animals. He handed children candy and personally awarded winners with cash prizes. And when Ponzi got word that the state government had launched a small investigation into his investment scheme, he got ahead of it. At McMaster's advice, he proactively met with authorities. He was more than happy to cooperate. He offered them the unthinkable. He would turn over his financial records before they even served him an official audit. And in the meantime, he pledged he wouldn't take a single investment until their investigation was complete. It was a cocky move. In one fell swoop, he communicated that not only was he a man of integrity, but a rich one. He could afford to close shop indefinitely. He had all the time and money in the world, and seemingly nothing to hide. But it was a bluff, of course. Ponzi knew that in order to prove solvency, he needed $15 million in liquid assets. He only had half that, at most. Though he didn't have the money, Ponzi did have time. His chief accountant, an 18-year-old Sicilian girl, kept the SEC's records on loose index cards. 
So while the auditor got to work interpreting his incredibly convoluted books, Ponzi devised an absurd plan. He was going to rob his own bank. Ponzi decided that the best way to come up with the cash was via a bank loan. And conveniently enough, he was the director of Hanover Trust. All he had to do was authorize a loan to himself. Then he'd waltz out the same day with several million in cash directly from the vault. There was just one problem. Hanover Trust had closed. Little did Ponzi know that the state bank commissioner assigned to his investigation had been looking into the institution for fraud. Before Ponzi could act, the bank was shuttered. His plan B was obliterated in a matter of days. Still, Ponzi refused to surrender. He deflected criticism from the press with a relentless smile and clever quips at his critics' expense. To anyone watching, he didn't have a concern in the world. But William McMasters had been observing him longer than most, and soon he couldn't help but be suspicious of his new boss. McMasters noted Ponzi's habit of contradicting himself in interviews and meetings, relying on his bewitching charm. And soon, the publicist began worrying about his own reputation. If Ponzi was a fraud, his career would be shot. So he began snooping in the SEC's offices, and he took what he found directly to his old employer, the Boston Post. On August 2nd, 1920, 38-year-old Ponzi awoke in his Lexington mansion to find out that his publicist had betrayed him. The front-page expose claimed Ponzi was drowning in debt. Far from the wizard the public believed Ponzi to be, McMasters wrote, "'The man is a financial idiot. He can hardly add. He sits with his feet on the desk smoking expensive cigars in a diamond holder and talking complete gibberish about postal coupons.'" Ponzi was furious. He'd just been insulted by a man whose checks, just days before, he'd been signing. But he resolved to keep a cool head. Over the next 10 days, Ponzi did everything to keep up appearances. He went out on the town almost nightly, attending the theater or the movies with Rose on one arm and his elderly mother on the other. But underneath the smile and the sparkling bravado, the pressure was wearing Ponzi down, and his wife's saint-like patience was growing thin. When Ponzi wasn't putting on a show for reporters, Rose watched helplessly as he paced around their mansion, anxiety-ridden and despondent. She was a fiercely private woman, but for days she'd put up with reporters waltzing into their home and taking up her husband's already precious time. She found herself frustrated to tears as Sunday dinners, once sacred, were lost to interviews. She may have had Ponzi's affection, but his attention was elsewhere. Ponzi knew the Boston Post was devising ways to expose him, and he was determined to build a fortress of good press to protect him from every attack. But the Post was about to throw a grenade over the wall. Coming up, the Boston Post delivers the final push. 
And now, back to the story. In the summer of 1920, 38-year-old Charles Ponzi was front-page news nearly every day. For weeks, he managed to dodge the bad press with his signature charm, but the Boston Post was determined to expose him for the fraud he was. That August, the Post received a tip from a source in Canada. They explained there were rumors that Ponzi had spent time in a Montreal prison under a different name. This was exactly the lead the Post was looking for. A reporter was immediately sent to Montreal to confirm the tip and soon found the rumors were true. Ponzi had been in prison for writing bad checks in 1908 under the poorly disguised alias Ponzi with an S. They even had the mugshots of Boston's financial wizard to prove it. On August 11, 1920, the Boston Post printed the discovery under the headline, Canadian Ponzi Served Jail Term, with mugshots and all. At 8 a.m. that morning, Ponzi met with reporters on the porch of his mansion to respond to the piece. He wore a silk bathrobe. Resting in one pocket was a 25 caliber pistol made out of blue steel. He denied the article's reporting, insisting that he and the young Ponzi with an S were not the same man. But his statements were rambling and stunted. At one point, he inexplicably took the gleaming pistol from his pocket. The reporters flinched, then watched on, scribbling notes as he explained how he'd bought the gun for self-protection. Just hours later, Ponzi met with reporters again in his lawyer's offices. This time, he was coiffed and polished in his signature suit, sitting behind a massive desk. Ponzi admitted that he was, in fact, the same man from Montreal. But once the truth was out in the open, he twisted his story. Ponzi told reporters that though he was sentenced for the crimes, he wasn't the one who committed them. Both arrests, he explained, were the result of misunderstandings, a classic case of wrong place at the wrong time. Appalled, Ponzi's lawyer walked out of the room. But as the interview concluded, Ponzi made his most genuine statement in months. With tears in his eyes, he lamented that he hadn't told his wife about his past. He was afraid the news would kill her. Hoping to deliver the news to his wife himself, Ponzi had ordered his staff to keep the papers out of their Lexington mansion. The thought of losing Rose terrified him more than anything. The next morning, he sat Rose down and told her the truth. He braced himself for the worst. Her reaction was anything but. Rose already knew. Ponzi's mother had told her long ago, and she'd decided to marry him anyway. She loved him unconditionally. Arrests or not, he was still her Charlie. Ponzi was overcome with relief. Everything was falling apart around him, his business, his reputation, his future. But with Rose at his side, he felt he could face the music. It would come sooner than he bargained for. That same morning, the Boston Post ran yet another headline, this time with a dark premonition. Arrest in Ponzi case may be made today. They'd just predicted the future. 
That afternoon, Ponzi and his lawyer arrived at the district attorney's office. It had taken the auditor weeks to interpret Ponzi's cryptic bookkeeping system, but they'd finally cracked the code. They estimated he was $7 million in debt. Paying his investors what he'd promised was impossible. And for good reason. There was no investment. The international reply coupon scheme was a scam. When they finished, there was a long pause. Ponzi finally spoke. Are you telling me, gentlemen, that I'm insolvent? They confirmed this was the case. He replied simply, then I am your prisoner. Ponzi's first night in jail, fittingly, was on Friday the 13th of August. Certain he'd be able to post bail the very next day, he called Rose to tell her he would be spending the night in the city on business. In reality, he would stay there for the next three months. Rose spent that time holed up in their Lexington mansion with only Ponzi's mother for company. Still, with each passing week, she maintained her husband's innocence with fierce resolve. In a heartfelt statement to reporters, she declared, I love him more than ever. But soon, Charles Ponzi would test his wife's unwavering faith. In the days leading up to his trial in the fall of 1920, Ponzi's lawyers, now working pro bono, met with him and Rose. Ponzi was facing a tidal wave of federal and state indictments. The charges were in the dozens, including 86 counts of postal fraud alone. His case quickly became the biggest and most complex Massachusetts had ever seen. For that reason, Ponzi was to be tried and sentenced twice separately for his federal crimes and then state. But before it began, his lawyers needed to know how their client wished to proceed. They explained that they had struck him a deal, plead guilty in federal court and serve five years maximum. If he insisted on pleading innocent, however, the sentence could be doubled if he was found guilty. For the first time in months, Rose felt hopeful. The choice seemed obvious. It would take every bit of strength she had but she could hold on for five years. But Ponzi still couldn't give up his pride, admitting he'd lied to his investors, to his mama, to Rose, was a fate worse than prison. He would play his game to the very end. He told his lawyers he refused. Rose sobbed, begging him to reconsider. She asked him, What difference does it make what the world thinks as long as I know you're innocent? To Ponzi, that difference was everything. On November 30th, 38-year-old Ponzi entered the courtroom to face his federal charges. He wore a handsome, chocolate-colored, double-breasted suit dressed for a night on the town. Rose, softly crying in the front row, wore black. But when the judge asked Ponzi for his plea, he hesitated. For all his insistence on fighting until the very end, when the moment finally came, he cracked. In a shaking voice, he said, guilty. 
In return, he was sentenced to five years in federal prison. Rose fainted, was revived, and fainted again. Ponzi sat utterly speechless, perhaps for the first time in his life. But before the court-martial led him away, he grabbed a pen, scribbled a note, and passed it to a gaggle of reporters. It read, Seek transit Gloria Mundi. Thus passes worldly glory. Ponzi's new home was at Plymouth County Jail, with a breathtaking view of the Cape Cod Bay. As he spent his days behind bars, he kept up every appearance. He wrote to his ever-shrinking group of still-loyal investors on new stationery embossed with the prison address. It was as if he'd simply moved offices. But while Ponzi still put on a show on the inside, outside of the prison walls, Rose was sweeping up the pieces of his shattered masquerade. Forced to let go of their many servants, the mansion in Lexington seemed cavernous and empty. Rose spent her time caring for her elderly mother-in-law with her sister, who she invited to stay with them to help fill the void. But soon, bankers would repossess the house and everything in it. On the day their lavish furniture was auctioned off, the public trampled its once manicured lawns, clamoring for their very own Ponzi memento. And of course, Ponzi's investors fared far worse. Hundreds registered with the state government, hoping for restitution. Others who'd wisely pulled their money before the collapse donated it to help pay those who weren't as lucky. But true reparations were never made. For every dollar his investors handed Ponzi, they ultimately got back less than 40 cents. For months after his arrest, papers across New England were peppered with heartbreaking stories of bankruptcies and lost homes. A World War I veteran with tuberculosis who could no longer afford a move to Arizona to treat his illness. Another man had invested $1,000 he received for losing his leg in an industrial accident, and he never got a cent of it back. One more couple had handed Ponzi their life savings, hoping to use the interest to buy their first home. The husband said grimly, guess it's a doghouse now. The Boston Post was arguably the only party to come out on top. In 1921, the paper was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for its investigation into Ponzi. Ponzi was released from prison in August of 1924. He'd served almost four years of his five-year federal sentence before being released for good behavior. But the courts weren't done with him yet. He still had to face trial for his state crimes. While he was out on bail, he enjoyed several months reunited with Rose, a free man. They moved to Florida, where he hoped to raise money for his next impending legal battle. But Ponzi fell back into his old ways. He created a new company under an alias, this time selling investors land. It seemed legitimate enough, but there was just one problem. Most of that land was underwater. It didn't take long before Florida officials caught on and sentenced him to a year in prison. 
Meanwhile, the Massachusetts courts had finally sentenced him to seven to nine years. The 44-year-old Ponzi was facing down another decade in prison. This time, he didn't go quietly. He ran. But true to his dramatic flair, first, he faked his own death. Specifically, his suicide. Ponzi wrote a note apologizing to Rose and his mother for taking his own life, and then arranged for friends to plant the letter and a pile of Ponzi's clothes on a beach in Jacksonville. Certain he fooled the authorities, Ponzi shaved his head, traded his suit for a sailor cap, and became Andrea Luciana. Using his new alias, he signed aboard as a dishwasher on an Italian freighter headed from Tampa back to his motherland. But he only got as far as New Orleans. Just as a nationwide manhunt was launched to find him, Ponzi, never content to fly under the radar, revealed his identity to a shipmate. Days later, he was sent back to Boston to serve his seven-year sentence. Ponzi spent the remainder of his sentence with his head down. He took up a prison job sewing underwear and wrote to Rose often. And in February 1934, at 51 years old, he was released for good this time. The Ponzi who walked out of prison was 40 pounds heavier and balding, but he had the same puckish grin. He was met with a hostile crowd, many of them spurned investors as well as reporters. Unflappable as always, he told them, it's great to see you boys. The following October, Ponzi was deported back to his native Italy. For all his talk of the American dream, he never attained citizenship. A squad of tall officers escorted the tiny, aging Ponzi to the SS Vulcania. He carried a single suitcase. Before boarding, he addressed reporters through tears, saying, I am not bitter. I went looking for trouble and I got it, more than I expected. While he came to America a bright-eyed 21-year-old in first class, he left a heartbroken old man in steerage. Rose didn't come with him. Her life, her friends, her family, everything she'd known was in Boston. Two years later, she filed for divorce. Eventually, Ponzi moved to Brazil, where he worked for an Italian airline. But by 1942, the company dissolved, and the stress of his life had taken its toll. Chronically ill and nearly penniless, Ponzi moved into the charity ward of a Rio hospital, where he gave his final interview. Finally, on his deathbed, Ponzi was honest. He told the reporter, My business was simple. It was the old game of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Charles Ponzi died on January 18, 1949, at the age of 66. Luckily, he had just enough money for his own burial, $75. But though Ponzi himself died in disgrace, his namesake and his shame, the Ponzi scheme, lives on in infamy. To this day, it's resurrected again and again, from small-scale cons to Bernie Madoff's $65 billion fraud. 
which raises a question. Of all of today's financial wizards, how many may just be crooks who haven't yet been caught? And how many are true geniuses who become criminals despite their success? This is a question we'll explore more in next week's episode when we delve into the life and crimes of music wonderkind turned murderer, Phil Spector. Thanks for tuning in to Famous Fates. For more information on Charles Ponzi, amongst the many sources we used, we found Ponzi's Scheme by Mitchell Zukov extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another story of remarkable success and even more remarkable downfall. Famous Fates Falls from Grace was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Falls from Grace was written by Alex Garland, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.